Acts chapter 9 is where we're going to be. And uh, I want to say thanks again for all the encouragement you've given me. And, and uh, I've been personally encouraged by Greg and Renee and, and Cody. And boy, you're just blessed with a wonderful staff here. And uh, just love Jesus and serve Jesus with their whole heart. And it's just been good to reconnect. I'll, Greg and I just kind of pick up where we left off. You know, we were, we were roommates, Greg and I, in Israel, on our Israel trip. We were. Uh, my wife and daughter went on that trip, and they stayed in a different room. Me and Greg, we were roommates. I'll never forget, we, here we are in the Middle East, over there, and we're at Sea of Galilee, and we check into our room, and, and the room number was 911. I don't think either one of us slept that night. We had a great time. Uh, good memories. Greg and I have had good memories together. I've got good memories of preaching in that building over there, too. And uh, that's a long time ago. And then what God's done. Boy, God's good. God's good. Here's what I believe. The best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. Let me tell you what's going on in Acts chapter 9. In Acts chapter 9, the apostle Paul was not yet known as the apostle Paul. He was, he was, he was still going by his pre-conversion name, Saul, because he was not yet saved. He, he was public enemy number one of the church. He, he got his kicks and giggles off sending Christians to jail or to death. He hated the name of Jesus, and he despised the gospel. And he was uh, well-educated and highly influential, both socially and politically. We meet him uh, on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9 with papers in his hand to drag Christians to jail. You remember that story, he had a head-on collision with the risen Jesus, changed his life. Jesus, who had long since uh, been crucified, buried, and rose again, seen by over 500 witnesses as recorded in history, bodily ascended to the right hand of God. Now, Paul, excuse me, Saul, sees the vision of Christ on the road to Damascus. Jesus speaks to him, and this man who is the most notorious opponent of the church of the living God engages with the risen Christ. Now, the Roman soldiers who were traveling with him didn't see that vision. They, they merely heard something. Now, now when, when all this ended, Paul was blinded. He, he was not able to see. He literally had to be led by the hand to finish the trip to Damascus. He's in Damascus. God speaks to another believer in Damascus named Ananias, and he says, basically, Ananias is a new believer in town. I want you to Go find him, lay your hands on him, and pray for him, and, and help him start his ministry. I imagine Ananias said, who is it? And God said, Saul of Tarsus. And Ananias probably said, is that really you, God, or the pizza I ate last night? Saul, saved, Saul, belongs to Jesus. That don't happen, but it did happen. And he met up with, with, with Saul, and he laid his hands on him and prays for him. When he does... Something like scales fall off of Saul's eyes, and now he can see. And that's where we pick up the passage in Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 19. The Bible says in verse 19, so when he, that Saul, had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? 
But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Now, after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and let him down through the wall in a large basket. Father, I pray you'd help us to hear, help us to receive, help us to respond according to your will. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said, what a story, what a story. And what a, what a vivid imagery kind of tale. I mean, you could see it. Here, here's, here's Saul in the earliest days of his ministry. Already his young ministry has reached the cloak and dagger stage as he's having to look over his shoulder day and night because the same kind of Jews that put Jesus on the cross are the same kind that are coming after him. He can't even leave the gates of the city lest they stone him or knife him or drag him and leave him in a ditch for dead. He, he, he's literally wondering about the end of his own life as he's probably going mostly at this point by house to house under the cover of darkness doing ministry when he can't be seen. It was in those desperate days that some of those Damascus disciples literally took Saul's life into their own hands. The Bible says that, says that they went up into the interior regions of that wall and they either found a hole or they dug a hole and they put a rope through the hole, tied to a basket. And then they put Saul into the basket so they could lower him down the outside of that wall by night so hopefully his life and ministry could continue. I read this story a number of times as I studied it, and I, I couldn't get my mind off that scene. Here's Saul hanging in a basket under the cover of darkness on the end of a rope held by those disciples. They're letting him down the wall, and he's looking up. I don't know if he could even see the whites of their eyes. Some point, at some point, hanging there as he was, I got to thinking, what would have been on his mind? And what would have, be, would have come out of his mouth? As he, as he hung there, as they were letting him down, what would have been some of those last words of exhortation? What would have been some of those final words of admonition? What would have been some of the final words of declaration that he would have sent up to the ears of those Damascus disciples as they let him down that wall that night? Well, I've read this story a number of times and even commentaries. I don't know that, they, that he said anything, but using my sanctified imagination, I imagine that at some point he probably looked down and looked back up and looked down and looked back up and said something like this, hey, fellas, don't let go of the rope. I want to preach a message tonight I've entitled, Don't Let Go of the Rope, because I'm preaching to a room full of rope holders in the kingdom of God. Do you understand that God has put somebody in your basket, a friend? God has put somebody in your basket, a loved one. God has put somebody in your basket, a neighbor, and the admonition to them is the admonition to us, do not let go of the rope. And I believe from our story, we can discern three reasons not to let go of the rope. Number one, first of all, don't let go of the rope because you don't know who's in your basket. Don't let go of the rope because you don't know who's in your basket. Now, by saying you don't know who's in your basket, I do not know, I do not mean that you don't know their name, you probably do. I do not mean that you don't know their face if you don't know their name. 
you probably do know their face. What I mean is, you don't know their potential in God. You don't know what God's going to do with them one day. You don't know what's coming down the road. All you know is that God has put somebody in your basket. Listen, we've read the rest of the book. We know the rest of the story. We know what happened to Saul after this and changing his name and his great ministry. But listen, they were holding the rope that night. They had no idea. Matter of fact, it looked very different to them, perhaps, at that time. Do you remember, do you remember a number of years ago when they finally killed Osama bin Laden? Do you remember that? You remember that? They got him. They broke into the, made, made a movie out of it. Zero Dark Thirty. How they got Osama bin Laden. And that was a big deal. A lot of us remember where we were when we heard that news. I mean, they've been looking for that rascal for 10 years after 9-11, and they finally found him, and they killed him. Now, now, what if the headline would have been a little bit different? What if instead of saying they've killed Osama bin Laden, what if, what if they'd said about this mastermind who had orchestrated 9-11 and the Twin Towers or the planes and all that? I, I, what, what, would they have, what, what, what if it had been like this? Osama bin Laden has been apprehended. Well, I'm thinking, what's he going to say? What if the headline went like this? Osama bin Laden has turned himself in. Now, would that have been news? That would have been a very different. He's not just been found. He's turned himself in. What if you read the papers? What if you saw the news? What if the headline was, Osama bin Laden has turned himself in, and the sub-headline was basically this as you begin to read the article. The reason that he's turned himself in is because somehow the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ has penetrated that compound where he's been hiding for the last decade. And now, under conviction of conscience, knowing the gospel is true, he has given his heart to Jesus. He's turned his back on Islam, and he's stepping forward to let himself be apprehended because he wants a worldwide microphone to say that Islam is false, Jesus is true, and Jesus is the only way. And being apprehended and spending the rest of your life in jail is worth it just to be able to say that to the world because Jesus matters that much. Now, would that be news? You say, yeah, it'd be news, but it's also fiction. It's also fantasy. Nothing like that could ever happen. I want you to know something, man. That's exactly what you have in Acts chapter 9. Saul was nothing less than a converted terrorist. He was. He was the Osama bin Laden of his days. As a matter of fact, he had so much in common with Al-Qaeda, it went like this. Every time he killed a Christian, he thought he was doing God a favor. Isn't that what they believe? And I'm telling you, friend, Saul was nothing less than a converted terror. There are people in your life, you think they can't be saved, he can't be saved, she can't be saved. I'm telling you, there's nobody under the sun God made that, cannot, that can outrun the long arm of the loving Lord, amen. Anybody can be open to the gospel if God moves in their heart, amen. Don't give up on it. Listen, they had no idea who was in this basket. They looked in the basket and saw a brand new baby Christian. They looked in the basket. They saw a man with Christian bloodstains still on his hands. They looked in the basket. They saw a man that was just getting a ministry started, wondering if it would take. But God looked in the basket and saw the greatest missionary to ever walk the planet. God looked in the basket and saw the greatest, uh, the man who would write most of the New Testament. God looked in the basket and saw the man that would take the gospel to the Gentiles, which is why there's even a Camden Corner of Hope even here tonight. It all goes back to that. What was in the hands of those men as they held that rope and they didn't let go. I'm telling you, you don't know who's in your basket. You don't know what God's going to do with them one day. 
That old boy that rides in that work truck with you, and every time you talk about what Greg preached on Sunday, he wants to change the subject. Every time you put the radio on Christian music, he wants to change the channel. Listen, you just keep on shining Jesus. You just keep on loving him in God. You just keep on talking about the Lord. You One day, that old boy might get saved and start one of the greatest men's ministries this church has ever seen because you didn't let go of that rope. Amen. That mama that doesn't answer the phone half the time, and if, if she's calling you, she needs money, or she's on drugs again, or she's drunk, Friend, you just keep on answering the phone. You just keep on listening to her problems. You just keep on pointing her to Jesus. I'm telling you, she might get saved one day and start one of the greatest women's ministries this county's ever seen if you don't let go of the rope, amen. You don't know what God might do with her one day. And I'll tell you this, I hate to say, I hate to even have to say this, but I'm gonna say it. Listen, we have to be reminding Christian parents and grandparents, your own children, don't let go of the rope of your own kids. God didn't want Hollywood to raise your kids. God didn't want the school system to raise your kids. He wants you to raise your kids in Jesus. That means holding that rope, amen. Let me ask you a question. You ever heard of John Wesley? Charles Wesley? Susanna Wesley? That's where I lose them, Cody. Susanna? I hadn't heard of her. Who's that? Their wife? Yeah, she's married to both of them. No. It was her mama, Susanna Wesley, the mother of John Wesley and Charles Wesley, the preachers, the hymn writers. By the way, she had 19 kids. That's a lot of dishes. She was the 27th in her family. That's a lot of diapers. What kind of a woman was Susanna Wesley? Was she an activist? Was she a feminist? What was she? She was a godly housewife who loved Jesus and raised her kids in God. You know what kind of woman she was? Here's what kind of woman she was. Studied the word, walked with God. 19 kids. True story. This happened one day. This is the kind of woman she was. Uh, John walks in. He's got a basic question. Maybe it's a question your kids have asked you. Maybe it's a question your, your grandkids have asked you. It's a philosophical, theological question. Now, I don't know what the scene was, but I can imagine maybe she's probably standing with an apron on and a sink full of dishes. <laughs> Big old pile of dishes. John walks in and asks a question, a theological question. He says, Mom, what is sin anyway? Good question. What is sin? This was her answer. Sin is whatever weakens your reasoning, impairs the tenderness of your conscience, obscures your sense of God, or takes away your relish for spiritual things. In short, if anything increases the authority and power of flesh over spirit, that to you becomes sin, however good it is in and of itself. I was just wondering. I mean, good gracious. I've, I've been to seminary. I, I don't know a seminary professor, Greg, that, that can tell, give me a better definition of sin <laughs> Then that little mama gave her boy that day. What is sin? If that's, listen, if that's the only working definition of sin you have, you're ahead of 90% of Baptists in America. What is the definition? Whatever weakens your reasoning, impairs the tenderness of your conscience, obscures your sense of God, or takes away your relish for spiritual things. In short, if anything increases the authority and power of flesh over spirit, that to you becomes sin, however good it is in and of itself. Now, what did John grow up to do? He grew up to write and preach over 45,000 sermons. He rode 25,000 miles on horseback in his life preaching the gospel. 
he learned 15 different languages so he could preach the gospel to more people. And he did it all his life and late in life. Matter of fact, funny story, he, he got mad at his doctor at 82 years old because his doctor restricted him to preaching no more than 14 times a week. At the age of 86, he wrote this in his journal. Laziness is slowly creeping in. There's an increasing tendency to stay in bed past 5.30 in the morning. Him and his brother, you know what they did? They shook two continents for Jesus. And I'm telling you that John was who he was and Charles was who he was as grown men because of when they were little boys, there was a housewife who loved God named Susanna Wesley who didn't let go of the rope. Amen. Amen. Sometimes it ain't even your own kid. Sometimes it's that, in that class you teach. There's that kid in that class. <laughs> that kid, you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> that kid that distracts from every lesson on Sunday in Sunday school, that kid that's cantankerous and ornery, that kid that, that seems not to listen, that kid that deserves every spanking he ain't never got. I'm telling you, that might be the next Billy Graham. If you just keep showing up and you love him, and you teach him, and you point him to Jesus, and you don't let go of the rope. Don't let go of the rope. You don't know who's in your basket. Number two, don't let go of the rope, not only because you don't know who's in your basket, but don't let go of the rope because you don't know how far they are from the bottom. Now, I don't know how tall this wall was, but it's dark. It's a wall around a city. They're somewhere in the interior regions with a hole and a basket. So I imagine they're standing there, you know, and they, it's, I don't know, they're just letting him down and letting him down, 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 and letting him down and letting him down, and letting him down and letting him down. Now there had to be one or two of them dudes in line holding that rope thinking, no, wait a minute. This wall's tall, but it can't be that tall. We've been letting him down, letting him down long enough. Now, what if they just assumed that, assumed he was reached the bottom, assumed he was close, and let go too soon? Slip, slip, wham, bam. There goes the New Testament. The book of Colossians would have been the book of collisions. But they didn't let go of the rope. Why? Because they didn't know how far he was from the bottom. What are you saying, preacher? What I'm saying is, don't let go of the rope because you don't know how far they are from the bottom, meaning don't let go of the rope because you don't know how far they are from a crisis or a breakthrough. And by the way, a lot of times, God will use the crisis to get them to the breakthrough, which is why you've been holding the rope this whole time anyway for. I mean, really, hold the rope. Listen, you don't know how far they are from the bottom. Have you ever heard about a man named Charles Plum? P-L-U-M-B, Charles Plum. He was a jet fighter pilot in Vietnam that became a motivational speaker. Now, why did he become a motivational speaker? Because when he was a jet pilot in Vietnam, he was good as a jet fighter pilot. He, he, he flew 74 successful, successive combat missions. But he was shot down on number 75. He ejected from the cockpit, he parachuted down, and he landed behind enemy lines, was captured, and spent six years in a communist Vietnamese prison. And he lived to tell about it. 
And so when he got back to the States, it became a big part of his story, and he traveled the country telling the story. Well, he tells his story, one particular story. After all that had happened, he said he was in a restaurant one night with his wife. And all of a sudden, a man ran up to him and said, hey, I, I know you. He said, you do? He said, yeah, you, you, your name's Charles Plum. He said, it is. He said, you're a, you're a jet fighter pilot in Vietnam. He said, that's right. He said, he said you, 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 you were on the aircraft carrier Kitty Hawk. He said, I was. He said, you served under this guy and that guy, and he named somebody. He's like, yeah, how do you know all that? He goes, you, you, you Charles Plum, you got shot down. You got shot down. He goes, yes, I got shot down. He goes, you won't believe that. He said, I served on the aircraft carrier Kitty Hawk. I was on there with you. I remember the day you got shot down. He said, why do you remember that? He said, because that's the day I packed your parachute. Let me ask you a question. Whose parachute are you packing? You better know because you know why? Hey, you don't know how far they are from getting shot down. He pumped his hand real hard. Guess it worked. <laughs> yes, it worked. Hey, but you know, there had to be some parachute packers that were thinking of themselves sometimes. You know, it's them flyboys that get all the glory. It's them guys out there. I mean, nobody ever got a purple heart for folding a bunch of nylon into a backpack. All we do is stand back here packing parachutes in this sweat box while them guys get to fly. Man, it doesn't even matter if I do a good job. Listen, it mattered to Charles Plum the day he got shot down. It seems sometimes like it doesn't matter. You don't know how far they are from the bottom. It's going to matter when they hit the bottom. You think they'll never hit the bottom, so it doesn't matter. It matters. One time this boy's walking down the ocean shoreline, and he was seeing all these starfishes wash up on the shore by the hundreds, and, and, and so he felt sorry for them because they were drying, dying out there on the sand, and so he started trying to save their little starfish lives. He started throwing them back in the water as fast as he could, and an old seaman came walking down the ocean. He said, boy, I was raised on the water. I, I've been here all my life. This happens every year. Every year it happens. They die by the thousands. They wash up too fast. You're wasting your time. You can't save them fast enough. It doesn't matter, son. It doesn't matter what you're doing. And the little boy picked up one more starfish and said, it matters to this one. It matters to the one in your basket. It matters to the one when you're the only one answering the phone. It matters to the one that you've been praying for. It matters when they hit the bottom and they see that you're the one holding the rope. I'm telling you, that prodigal that ran away, and it seems like they, look, they ghost you. They don't, they don't respond to your text, even though you say, I love you. It doesn't matter what you've done. I love you. I'm still praying for you. I'm telling you, this week might be the week if you keep praying. Next week might be the week if you keep texting. That They finally come back home, amen. They might just be that close to the bottom. That old boy, it's strung out and turns his back on everything you say, that person that's excused himself away from every decent thought or decent way of life and, and under the sun, I'm telling you, you just keep on showing Jesus. You just keep on praying for him. You just keep on leaving that track because next week might be the week. This month might be the month. 2023 might be the year they finally come to Jesus, understand, because of a breakthrough, because of a bottom, because of a crisis. You don't know how far they are from the bottom. It was 1130 at night in the 1960s in eastern Alabama. It was pouring rain. 1130 at night, eastern Alabama, 1960s, pouring rain. And a man is driving his car down the highway in the rain. He sees somebody with off of the side of the road. Their car is off the side of the road. Their hood is up, obviously car problems. And 
he sees a figure vaguely through the rain in the middle of the street doing this. When he gets up to her, he sees it's the owner of the car. She's looking for help. Now, this is in the 1960s. He's a white man. She's black. It's Alabama. Are y'all with me? He's got a choice to make. But he wasn't a man-fearing man. He was a God-fearing man, and he wanted to do the right thing. So he's going to help her out. Well, she didn't want help with the car. She said, forget the car. If you could just get me back to town so I can get a taxi. I'm in a hurry. So she, he said, I'll help. So she got in the back of his car, and he drove five miles back to town and helped her find a taxi. When he put her in the taxi, even offered to pay for as much of the fare as he could with the change in his pocket and the money in his pocket, and she said, can I get your address, please, before I go away? And he said, yes. He gave her his address, and she sped off in a taxi. He didn't think much of it. Till two weeks later, there's a delivery man at his door. Somebody is delivering to his house a full-size, floor-model, color console television set. I know you're not impressed, but that'd be like a 65-inch flat-screen plasma LED, whatever, today, all right? It's a big deal. Best TV money could buy. There was a note on it, and he read it, and it said this. Thank you for helping me on the highway the other night. The rain drenched not only my clothes, but also my spirits. Then you came along. Because of your help, I was able to make it to my dying husband's bedside just before he passed away. Thank you for unselfishly serving others. Sincerely, Mrs. Nat King Cole. Don't let go of the rope. You don't know who's in your basket. And don't let go of the rope because you don't know how far they are from the bottom. Don't let go of the rope. Don't let go of the rope not only because you don't know who's in your basket. Don't let go of the rope not only because you don't know how far they are from the bottom. But don't let go of the rope because you might be the only one holding on to it. How many held Paul's rope? Let's see. Let's see, it's in verse, I think it's chapter. No, okay. I see. I think it was seven. No, I'm sorry, it was four. No, I'm, I, I'm sorry, it was, it was seven. No, it was eight. It was eight, that's right. Let's see, no. I think you have to know the Greek. I don't know the Greek. It was five. It was five that held. No, actually, it was four and a half. It was four Damascans and a midget. And, and so, so we had, no. It does not say, does it? No, we assume it was, it was more than, than one. It, was, it, it could have been two. It could have been eight. It could have been five. Doubt it was four and a half. Could have been four. Could have been seven. It doesn't matter because whether it was two, whether it was eight, whether it was seven, whether it was five, whether it was three, I know this much about human nature. I know this much about human nature, that as long as it was more than one, they all assumed it was a joint effort. You know, you know, my daughter's already grown up, moved through our house, you know, and now she's married, and I got a grandson. And, and you know, when, my, when, my, when my, my daughter was coming along, 
Uh, we had birthdays. You know, we, we did birthday parties like you're supposed to do. And, uh, and, and my, you know, my daughter, we had a one-year-old birthday party. I don't know why. I, you know, I mean, does she remember that birthday party? No. Kid, your kid doesn't even know what it is. You're throwing it for a If you throw a one-year-old birthday party, that's not for the kid. That's for you, for surviving year one. So we laid off it for like number two, number three, you know. But then when she got like five years old, six years old, we were like, we need to get a little more creative and do all the stuff that birthday parties have because she might actually remember this birthday party. Like I can actually remember some of my six-year-old birthday party. And so we we try to check all the boxes, right? We'd, we'd have the cake and we'd have the, the friends and the presents and the party hat. And, and what, when we're putting all this together, I'm thinking, man, 30 years between her birthday parties and mine at that age, and they really hadn't changed that much. I mean, really, they, they hadn't changed. I mean, you know, they're, they're, what we had, the cake, you know, the hats, the party favors, the games, the, the friend, you know, I mean, her birthday parties and my birthday parties were pretty much the same, except hers were more pink than mine, <laughs> except for one, but that's between me and my therapist. Anyway, and... But here's the thing. When we got to the games part, what, what party games were we going to play? There were some games that my parents made us play that I told myself as a kid, I'm never going to make my kids play these stupid games. Like, for instance, I don't know how it was for you, but in my house, when I was four years old, five years old, it seems like I couldn't run with nothing, play with nothing, have fun with nothing, because everything, according to my parents, had the potential to put your eye out. You remember those days? Stop running with those scissors, boy. You'll put your eye out. Put that pencil down acting like that. You're going to put your eye out. What do you want for Christmas, Scott? I want a Red Rider BB gun. You can't have a BB gun. It'll put your eye out. What do you want for dessert? I want a cookie. You can't have a cookie. It'll put your eye out. One day, we was at Walmart, and a blind guy walks by. And Mama's like, uh-huh, look at him. All he wanted was a cookie and a BB gun. Everything will put your eye out. But you know what? You're going to turn five years old for you. You're going to have a birthday party with all the people. And your parents who handcuffed you all your life are about to become the epitome of hypocrites. What is the first birthday game you play? All of a sudden, you get the kids in there, all the kids in your neighborhoods, even the ones you don't like. <laughs> and, and they're in this room, and they shut the door, and, they, and there's, a, there's a poster of a donkey with no tail. And so they, 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 they pick the meanest kid in your neighborhood, they put a blindfold on him and stick a tack in his hand. <laughs> He's running around like this. Every kid raised on this planet is going, cover your eyes, cover your eyes, put your eye out. So I made up my mind, we are not going to play pin the tail on the donkey. Pinatas. You know what I'm talking about, pinatas? Colorful animal made out of paper and glue. You hang it from a limb on the tree in the backyard. Animal rights people love this game. Because what are you about to do? You're about to take a baseball bat and beat it till its guts pop open. Candy for days. Which makes the situation worse. Kids with a baseball bat with a blindfold swinging. We never... We, I didn't even need to play that as a kid. I just decided we're not doing that. I've seen enough episodes of America's Funniest Home Videos to know that is a bad idea. Learn from the failure of others. Then there was tug of war. Remember tug of war? 
Oh, the first time you played tug of war, you thought it was a great game. Easy rules. You had a rope. You were at Billy Bob's birthday party or Sarah Lee's birthday party, whoever. And, and you had, you had, you had 40, you know, 20 kids on that end of the rope, 20 kids on this end of the rope. And they said, all right, you're going to pull. And there's a big mud puddle in the middle. Big mud puddle. Your mama told you to stay out of the mud all your life. We're going to drag 10 kids through it today. These kids pulling that way. These kids pulling that way. You found your place on the rope, and you gave it all. You got rope burns and all. Maybe you won. Maybe you lost. But then at field day, they said, we're playing we're playing tug of war, so you play tug of war. Maybe you won, maybe you lost. You know, you just you play tug of war at the parties, you play tug of war, recess, you play tug of war. By the time you get to middle school, you hate that game. Because by the time you get to middle school, you start figuring stuff out. Namely this, that when it's time to play tug of war and 40 kids come off the line to play it, you got 20 kids on that end of the rope, 20 kids on this end of the rope, and all 40 of them are going, Pull, heave, hole. Ain't really but about 12 or 15 of them rascals on the whole rope pulling it all. The rest of them are just leaning on it going, amen. Lion. By the way, I just described the average Baptist church on Sunday. <laughs> amen. Everywhere I go, all, everybody in there is going, heave, hole, hoo, hoo. But everywhere I've been, I, about 15% of the people are doing 85% of the work. Amen. <laughs> Rest of them just leaning on the rope. Hey, listen, here's what I've learned. Do not assume it's a joint effort. You might be the only one pulling on the rope. You might be the only one praying. You might be the only one giving. You might be the only one with the door open and the light on on the porch. You might be the only one answering the call. You might be the only one. What does it look like when you're the only one? My wife has an only one mentality. I've learned this from her. She's far more evangelistic than I am, just by nature. I'm, I remember one time we, when we lived in a little apartment in Knoxville, Tennessee, I'd gotten back from being on the road, and I slept in that next day because I was tired, and I got up, and I showered, and I went downstairs. When I was heading downstairs, it, 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 these strange noises were coming from the kitchen. It sounded like pots and pans were falling out of the cabinets. And I'm like, good gracious, what is all this racket in the kitchen, Scarlett? She said, it's a Japanese language learning CD. I'm learning Japanese. She is serious. And I'm like, honey, you're, you're learning Japanese. Don't you know Japanese is one of the hardest languages to learn? I mean, we barely mastered English, man. You're taking on Japanese. Why are you learning Japanese? We don't even know anybody that speaks Japanese. She says, Scott, you don't remember? I said, what? So I told you last week when you were at Revival, I met Junko. I said, Junko? Junko, the girl, her husband and the whole family just moved here from Japan. They're living in Oak Ridge, working at the lab. And, and, and I met her. She brings her little baby, Nanae, down to the playground where I take Gianna to play. She doesn't speak English. I met her husband. He speaks a little bit of English. But, but I'm sure they don't know the Lord. And, and they're going to be here three years. He's on contract for three years. And we agreed we're going to meet at the playground. We're going to meet at the playground, let our kids play and talk to her. And she said, I figured if I try hard enough, I can learn enough Japanese so that I can tell her about Jesus before she goes back to Japan. My wife learned as much Japanese as she could, and she'd get on, use Google Translate, and they'd talk online sometimes. So, and, then, and, then, and then Junko got pregnant with her second child, and 
and, 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 and they did, Scarlett got some ladies from the church and they threw a shower for Junko. They don't do that in Japan. They don't celebrate birth in Japan like we do here. They just don't. It's not a big deal. So she couldn't believe it. They're going to throw a party with gifts because the baby's on the way. And so she came in, and those ladies loved all over her. And, and then we had Thanksgiving that year. And, I, and, and, and we asked my parents to come up from Georgia there to where we were living in Knoxville and have Thanksgiving with us. And we invited Junko and Susuke. And, and they came over, and they had their cameras on. Both of them had cameras, and they're going to take pictures of American Christmas. And, and it was great. And, and, uh, and, and they just, everything, man, they were just taking pictures. And, and we had a big time. And, and boy, I tell you, I, I just couldn't believe how, how fast those three years went by. I, I never forget, one day I was sitting at the table eating, Gianna's eating, and uh, we're eating, and Scarlett's sitting there, and she's just kind of playing with her food, and a big tear is rolling down her cheek. And I said, honey, what's wrong? She said, today's the day. Today's the day. I said, today's, today's what day? She said, three years. She's they're on a plane right now. They're heading back to Japan. She said, I did the best I could. I hope she understood. True story. She's telling me this. It's coming out of her mouth at that moment, and there's a knock at the door. Yes, they were leaving today, but they weren't on the plane. They had one more stop to make. I'll never forget walk, getting up from the table, walking over to the door, opening up the door, and there they were, the whole family. I mean, I mean, there's, there's little Junko and her husband standing right beside her. And that little Nanae looks like a little, little doll, you know, and then that big belly out to here, boy. I mean, she was, she was just ready to give birth any time. And, and, and she's not looking at me. She's looking through me. She's looking around me. She's looking for Scarlett. And so I just, I just went like this, and, and Scarlett stood up from the table and spun around, and Junko looked at her, and their eyes met. And you know, in Japan, their culture's not very overt in their affection and their expression. They're very reserved. But I saw that little Japanese girl run to my wife, and they threw their arms around each other, and tears began to flow. And in her hand, she was holding a little, a little Japanese doll that she'd stitched together by hand to give it to my wife. I'd love to be able to tell you right now that she gave a heart to Jesus. I don't know. But I know this. She saw an American woman named Scarlett Smith who even tried to learn the language so she could pour in truth into her life about the gospel. And that bonded their hearts in a way that she may never be bonded with another who's not from her own country. And I'm telling you, God can water those seeds. Why in the world would you go to those links? Why in the world would you learn Japanese when it's the farthest thing from your native language? There's only one reason. You might be the only one holding that rope. It's not just that example. I could go on and on and on. Even Paul. Do you understand Luke? Do you know that Luke, the book of Luke, was written by Luke? I've been to seminary, Jack. I know stuff. <laughs> to one man. The book of Luke was written by Luke to one man. His name was Theophilus. Why would, you write, why would you write an entire account of Jesus and deliver it to a man that he might be saved? Because you might be the only one holding the rope. By the way, it worked. 
Theophilus gave his heart to Jesus. How do you know that? Because Luke wrote a sequel. Luke part two, also known as Acts, to the same dude. And he said, Theophilus, Theophilus I'm going to tell you what Jesus was up to and is up to and what he's going to continue to do. I'm telling you, listen, why would you do that? You do that because you might be the only one holding on to the rope. That's why. You might be the only one praying by name for that person. You might be the only one showing up. You might be the only one available. You might be the only one holding the rope. You may be the only one who even knows about it. Years ago, somebody handed me an Atlanta Journal-Constitution newspaper. Read that story, Scott, and I started reading the story. It's amazing, interesting story. The story was about Deborah Kemp. Deborah Kemp was a 36-year-old woman who lived in suburban Atlanta. Simple story, she was pumping gas into her car at one of these local stop and robs. She's topped off her tank. She's replaced the nozzle. Now she's going into the store to pay for the gas she just pumped. When she gets to the door, she hears a car crank up. She's thinking, wait a minute. My car's the only one here in the parking lot at the pump. She turned around. Sure enough, she left the window down, unlocked, keys in the car. Somebody's stealing it. Somebody's jumped in the car. They're trying to drive away with her automobile. Well, she throws down her wallet and sprints toward the car as the driver's trying to get back out of the busy suburban Atlanta traffic. The window's still down, so as he's there, she collides with the car, she throws her arms in through the open window, wraps one arm around the steering wheel, wraps the other arm around the man's neck as he proceeds to drag her, hanging out the window, by on her knees for four blocks. Deborah Kent manages to wrestle the man from the car as the driverless car, which never picked up a whole lot of speed, drifts off the side of the road, breaks a water main, stops. By the time the cops get on the scene, there's water everywhere, cars over there in the ditch. She, Deborah Kemp, is standing over the perpetrator in the middle of the street, beating him over the head with an anti-theft device known as the club. Which I think of until that day, it was just called anti-theft device. By the time the cops pulled Deborah Kemp off the man, he's got a broken arm on this side, fractured over here, a broken femur, and two concussions. I put down the newspaper, I thought, next time I play, I want Deborah Kemp on my team. She was one determined lady. Her baby was in the back seat. What seemed foolish to the world now makes sense. You didn't see it, but she knew it. It wasn't about a car. It was about a life. And she fought how she fought because she knew she was the only one fighting for it. Don't. Let go of the rope. You don't know who's in your basket. You don't know what great thing God's going to do with them one day. You don't know who they're going to become in Jesus. 
Don't let go of the rope. You don't know how far they are from a crisis or a breakthrough. You don't know how far they are from the bottom. And don't let go of the rope because you might be the only one holding on to it. Don't let go of the rope. Let's stand together.